and when it hits the continental shelf, it drops down and will drop to a range of between 1,000 and 4,000 meters. So it's incredibly deep, and you have a lot of animals down there that are relying on like marine snow, is what it's called, you know, to feed. Today I'm talking to Jack O'Donovan. Jack is the communications officer at Fair Seas. Jack is blending the art of good communication with marine science to bring the message of ocean protection to a wide audience in an engaging and impactful way. Jack is a marine biologist by training and moved into comms and campaigns in 2018 and has since worked with many large international environmental coalitions and campaigns across Europe. So hi Jack, thank you so much for coming to the Borough Nature Sanctuary and it's such fun having somebody actually face-to-face -to, -face to talk to rather than on a computer screen. Oh, thanks so much for having me here Mary, I'm delighted to be here and yeah it's great to get a trip out to the Burn Inn always. Yes of course, so Jack is with Fair Seas and I met the group at the Biodiversity Conference in February I think it was. Could you tell the listeners all about Fair Seas? Sure, so Fair Seas is an Irish campaign um, to create marine protected areas. So Ireland, um, for anyone who isn't aware, has a maritime area seven times the size of the island. And what Fair Seas is trying to do is um, encourage the government to meet their targets of creating marine protected areas um, covering 30% or at least 30% of our maritime area by 2030. And Fair Seas is a campaign hosted by Ireland's leading environmental NGOs and networks. Um, and has some great um, funders who are on board to help us with this goal. Um, as a part of the campaign recently, so in June 2022, we produced a report called Revitalising Our Seas. And what that report really is doing is acting as a kickstarter for the conversation surrounding marine protected areas in Irish waters. So, like I said, our goal is to ensure that Ireland sees the creation of a network of marine protected areas covering at least 30% of our maritime area by 2030. This is actually in the Irish programme for government. So currently the government have outlined that they are going to do this. However, there's been no progress on it to date. So, for example, um, the government had um, the objective of having at least 10% uh, of our waters protected by 2020. However, still today, in 2022, we're only at 2%. Mm. And all of those areas we currently have designated are through um, European law, so EU law. So they are SACs mostly. Um, and... Those SECs like that have been designated through European law and we don't have any management plans in place for them. So they're kind of lines on a map and they're there, but there's nothing really actively being done to protect them. So can you tell me, well, tell us all, why is it so important to protect these areas and what are they subject to at the moment that needs to be stopped? Sure. So, okay, why is it so important? So from a whole amazing plethora of reasons, you know, we need to protect our ocean. Our ocean being um, the largest um, store of um, carbon on the planet um, and the place where the most carbon dioxide has been um, drawn into since the Industrial Revolution. You know, it's 70% it's of our planet. And, you know, a lot of people don't even realise as well that it's it's not so much the, the marine animals, but the plants, like, you know, the, the amount of algae that grows even on the surface of the sea that so much so that 50% of the oxygen in the atmosphere comes from the ocean at least 50% so that's every second breath you take that oxygen has come straight from the ocean so that's how connected all of us are no matter if you live absolutely inland in continental Europe you are directly connected to the sea wow. always yeah. wow that's, in that's incredible so if these areas were protected how would that affect the plant and animal life 
Sure. So, um, so the areas like that that you mentioned from our report, there's 16 areas of interest that we have identified as potential marine protected areas. And they're areas that we have um, decided upon based on our analysis of the best available scientific data for Irish seas, looking at um, five main groups. Uh, those groups include seabed features, um, seabirds, cetaceans, which is your whales, dolphins and porpoises, um, elasmobranchs, which is your sharks, your skates, your rays and chimeras, um, and as well commercially exploited species, so species that are commercially fished for. And so, you know, what would happen? What would happen if those areas were protected? So those areas we've decided are, are very important for those groups of species. You know, we looked at the diversity of species and also the um, density, so the species density, so how many of a species and how many different kinds of species are in an area. And we kind of overlaid that data to find real hotspots. And if you think about it, like I said, the ocean provides so many what you call ecosystem services, so benefits to human society that maybe we don't always kind of um, feel connected to, but they're always there for us, be it um, climate mitigation measures or oxygen production or food production. And so by protecting these critically important areas, those habitats can be healthy, the species within it can thrive, and that allows them to produce all of those benefits. On top of all that, there's the, the whole um, protecting biodiversity for the sake of biodiversity itself, because nature deserves its own protection regardless of giving us anything. And um, so, you know, by protecting these areas, we can allow the recovery of a lot of species, because as we know and we've seen globally across the world, the ocean is under a lot of pressure due to rising sea temperatures, ocean acidification, but also um, large industrial scale fishing um, and some damaging practices used in those industrial scale fishing activities. Um, and as well into the future now, we're looking at a lot of development in our sea with um, offshore wind and um, different sorts of potential marine energies that are being created and all the infrastructural and kind of um, noise pollution activities that might coincide with it. So by mapping out marine protected areas as soon as possible, it means that before we get carried away with large scale industrial developments, that at least we are sure that we are not causing more harm than good when we're installing something like, say, offshore wind, for mm, example. Mm. And you were talking to me earlier about how, yeah, there's lots of companies that want to come in and do offshore wind off island and sell the energy to a different country. So that doesn't make sense at all. Um, but just being the devil's advocate, uh, I was down in Killybegs and you can see all the, the fishing, quite large fishing boats, you know, tied up there and they can only fish their quota or whatever. So what do you say to the fisherman that is already struggling to pay his debts? Um, or how does the government, you know, have a transition from this industry that's clearly not working so well now? So, okay, so for the, for the, for the um, Ireland's fishing community, we actually have a series on YouTube called Real Voices. And that's a series where we've been traveling around the coast, interviewing people who make their living from the sea. So that's everything from um, people in the fishing industry to um, shellfish producers and things like that. And, you know, what we are, what we are trying to do is, is bring those voices that are lesser heard in the marine, say, conservation sphere in, in, into the conversation early on, because that's as well what we are encouraging the government to do is not just designate these areas, but designate them on the best available science and by early and very engaged stakeholder um, engagement processes. And so what, what we'd say is that by working together on the ground, you know, that is how we will have an effective network of marine protected areas. When we say um, a network, we want this network to be um, well informed like that by science, but as well, you know, we need it to factor in the communities that rely on the area. 
And there are countless studies from around the world that show enormous benefits of marine protected areas to local fisheries. There is no study ever to show a reduction in fisheries catch due to marine protected areas. In fact, some studies have shown the um, biomass of marine life within a marine protected area increased by 670%. And from that, when you have that increase, you get what's called the spillover effect. And the spillover effect basically is when you allow this area to be repopulated and reproduction and you start to have, say, more adults that are reproducing together and creating more offspring, eventually they start to push outside the boundaries of your marine protected area. And then what they do is they contribute to the stocking of the local mm. um, fish stocks or uh, crustacean stocks or whatever it is. So they can have enormous benefits for um, coastal communities. That makes such sense. Um, and do we have bottom trawling? in this area in in the irish waters at the moment and what exactly is bottom trawling and is it are they irish boats or where are they coming from okay sure so look i'll um i i'll just say that i'm not a, a fisheries expert that mm -hmm. would be my area of expertise there's a lot of people who are there's a lot of great irish fisheries scientists and um, yes we do have bottom trawling in irish water so bottom trawling is a or bottom fishing let's say okay um would be the overall uh term for the for the the style of fishing and that, that that's fishing that um basically means that the, the gear that is used is dragged along the, the seafloor. And that's often used for fisheries for scallops, for example, that would be quite a common technique for, for that sort of fishery. Um, and basically what it does is essentially, if you think about it, heavy bottom gear like that, dragging along the seabed, and if you have a habitat that is quite uh, fragile, so things like sea pens. Sea pens are um, something that lives in an area where you'd also have the Dublin Bay prawn, or nephrops, as they're known. Sea pens, are sea they pens. an animal? They're an animal that's related to the anemone. Oh. But they're like a long, stalked animal with branches coming off it, okay. like a little bit of a long, thin Christmas tree kind mm. of an animal. And they live in, little, in colonies in areas where you'd also have Dublin Bay prawns, and they're very sensitive seabed habitat. And these are kind of muddy areas mm -hmm. that are actually also very good at um, sequestering carbon. Um, and so if you imagine these delicate communities there and if something big and heavy is dragged across them well the whole community could be wiped out very quickly and as well in other areas say in deep sea areas you might have cold water corals and cold water coral reefs like the cold water coral reef communities especially in the Irish continental shelf and the Irish continental slope area they can be thousands of years old those mm -hmm. communities and to think that it's taken so long for them to develop and they could be just wiped out in a single in mm -hmm. a single go so that, that's really why marine protected areas are essential because we have so much going on in our ocean at the moment. We really need to make sure that we've mapped it out correctly to ensure we're mitigating all the, the damages possible to the most sensitive areas. Mm, yeah, that makes such sense. And the lady that works in our local health food shop has been doing her PhD on the, um, the reefs, the cold water reefs um, outside in Irish waters that are comparable to some of the best reefs in the world, I believe. Oh, absolutely. All along um, our, our, our continental um, shelf and our slope here and in the deeper water. So if you look at the, our report Revitalizing Our Seas, so that you can find that on fairseas.ie, um, you'll see that we have eight coastal areas of interest for marine protected area designation, but we also have eight offshore areas. And a lot of those would incorporate cold water coral reefs. You know, they, they would. Um, recently, we saw a decision from the EU to close uh, 16,000 square kilometers of European waters to um, particular types of bottom fishing and that's uh, areas in the deep sea below 400 meters and a lot of those areas would include um, very sensitive habitats for some coral species perhaps but as well the area just above it where there is sediment that if it is bottom trawled 
that sediment can actually rise up and it can it'll settle down on these coral communities and mm. smother them essentially you know so um it's in an unbelievably diverse area and not just for corals but also for a lot of deep sea shark species we have there so the elasmobranch group we talked about and um, in our report we studied a whole remit of elasmobranch species and so many um endangered species in fact that exist out here in the deep sea like the portuguese dogfish for example is an incredible species of deep water shark that we have in our waters but mostly found again in in these areas along the the shelf and deep areas where you might also find the cold water coral reefs mm. so um just for the listeners uh, to picture the cold water coral reef what have we got there what does it look like sure well what i would say to your listeners is the best thing to do is to search on the marine institute's sea rover project and they've been doing surveys in all of Irish deep sea and all the information is freely accessible. It's kind of like a freedom of information sort of a thing. You can request this data from them and they will just essentially send you the pictures and you can see for yourselves. And um, if you go on to fairseas.ie, we also have a few photographs as well um, on some of our recent articles. We've, we've used some of them and within our report, there'll be photos. But these would be communities. So imagine most people are familiar with, say, the Great Barrier Reef or the reefs of the Red Sea in Egypt. These colorful communities full of life and fish and everything they're not dissimilar to what you see there these are large large coral structures down there like um um large coral structures and coral gardens where you'll have assemblages of different species of corals and people forget the coral is an animal you know it's an animal um, and the color of coral comes from the um algae that is in a symbiotic relationship with the the animal interesting in in it, it, perhaps different in the deep sea in, in tropical coral reefs a coral will get about 80% of its food from this algae um, and that's why coral bleaching is so damaging because the, when, when the sea temperature remains too high for too long or acidification rises too high and remains that level for too long the coral actually the animal expels the algae from its body because the algae can no longer survive and then you have an animal that is needs you know it's lost 80% of its food source and then that's why you have coral dying off is because if that algae doesn't reassimilate onto the, the, the coral, it doesn't have enough food to survive and it'll die off eventually, okay. you know, which would be different. That's a different to, to our, our deep sea, of course, because there's no light <laughs> down mm. there, you know, so it's not the same relationship. So how far down is the Irish coral reef? Um, so it depends on which area you're talking about here, but say in the, the off the west coast, you know, so um, directly off our shore, yeah, the water stretches out um, and, and an average depth of about 200 metres which seems deep, but in relative ocean terms, that's quite shallow. And when it hits the continental shelf, it drops down and it'll drop to a range of between 1,000 and 4,000 metres. So it's incredibly deep. And you have a lot of animals down there that are relying on like marine snow is what it's called, you know, to feed. So this is the debris of all other um, dead plankton and algae and everything that falls from the surface. And it will feed on that as it comes down and it settles in the, in the bottom. But you also have predatory animals down there like sharks and different things that are living down there. Um, you know, who also feed in the, the traditional sense that we'd understand. But even in Irish waters, new species are being discovered all the time. New communities and ecosystems are being discovered. There's amazing work being done out of a lot of our universities and our research institutions. And um, it's great to see I was down at the launch of the RV Tom Crean, the new Marine Institute research vessel um, last week in Dingle. And it's just amazing to see this investment going in to further understand our waters and hopefully lead to um, allowing us to better protect us. Mm. Well, that's great that there's some positive actions. And I think when people can see what's actually there, um, they then understand you know, why we need to conserve it. So that's, that seems very positive. Are there any other positive stories from this project or for the marine area in general? Um, definitely. I mean, uh, 
what I'd say is just to see that, you know, eight of Ireland's leading environmental NGOs and networks have come together under this one banner to really, really focus on making sure this happens is fantastic. And um, we, we, we've been quoted now um, in the Dáil twice in the Dáil Chamber, Fair Seas has been mentioned, which is fantastic to know that we're getting into the minds of our policymakers. And they've been very receptive to all the information we had. And like we said, revitalizing our seas um, is it's a quite a substantial report. If you include the indices and the, the appendixes and everything, you're talking a couple of hundred pages. Um, but it is the first of its kind, really, for Irish waters. You know, the government did commission a report called Expanding Ireland's Marine Protected Area Network. I think that's what it's called. So it was this uh, expert um, advisory group report that the government commissioned on. How should we do it? But um, it didn't look at any areas. It hadn't mapped out where we should protect. It just said maybe why we should do it or how we could go about it and the benefits of it. Um, so, you know, there th th to see that a campaign of this scale is happening and that we're having positive um, uh, uptake from our policymakers is wonderful. Mm. Um, and, and you're getting two new members of staff, is that correct? Exactly, yeah. So we have actually two of our current staff moving on. So Regina Classen, who is a co-author of Revitalising Our Seas with the Irish Wildlife Trust, is moving on now. So there'll be a marine policy and advocacy officer position that's currently open. Um, you can find more information on the Irish Wildlife Trust website. And as well, there'll also be a position opening up for a member of our steering committee. Um, which was the wonderful Ellen McMahon from um, Sustainable Water Network. And um, her position will be being filled in the next few weeks or months. So I'd have a look at the Sustainable Water Network website to keep tabs on that. But even within Irish Waters, there's amazing success stories already happening that are actually being incorporated into these areas. So if you've ever heard of Rockabill Island, it's a small, small little rock with a lighthouse on it, a tiny island off the coast of Dublin, off the coast of Skerries. And that is the most important roseate tern colony in Europe. In all of Europe, you know, this amazing bird that is endangered, that is, you know, under um, uh, high conservation importance. And the fact that its most important colony is just off the coast of Dublin and Birdwatch Ireland, one of our partners, have a phenomenal project out there where they are working night, noon and morning all across the breeding season with a full team of volunteers and staff to protect and to monitor these birds. And they're seeing wonderful increases in the population out there, which is fantastic. And we're very lucky in June to get to bring... Um, um, uh, Minister for State um, Malcolm Noonan out there as well as Dara O'Brien he came and launched our report for us that day he didn't join us on the island that day but he said he'd be back no doubt but and we brought some um, members from the MPWS as well out there just to show you know our members of government this is what nature recovery can look mm -hmm. like and you go out to this tiny island and you have three and a half thousand birds nesting on this rock and mm -hmm. you are in this tornado of seabirds oh you know goodness. so much so that we have to we had to make little protective hats with cardboard um, in them to stop the birds biting your head, you know. So to see that that's happening in Irish waters, to see the wonderful effort being put in by all of the groups across the country, you know, even outside of the remit of our um, partners to the project, all those areas will just exponentially be benefited again by marine protected areas because it just branches out that little bit further. Yeah, I know Malcolm Noonan is a great bird lover as well. And yeah, I was pecked on the head by an Arctic tern, so I know that pain. <laughs> And also we've had the basking shark has, is now a conservation um, protected species. So that's something that the general public can understand. What do you think about that? Oh, it's just fantastic news. You know, this is, um, this is the result of um, years of hard work by many groups in the area, including the um, Irish basking shark group and um, members of government who have kind of really championed the species. And it's wonderful to see this because 
The Irish basking shark, um, for one, is the second biggest fish in the sea. It's this enormous, enormous shark that on average grows to between 5 and 7 metres, but has been recorded up to 11 metres long. I mean, 11 metre shark in Irish waters. You know, I bet you there's people you'd meet and they think that is just inconceivable. They'd never consider something like that, you know, occurring in our own waters. So to have that protected and have that as such an emblem of Irish marine biodiversity, I think is so valuable and so tangible to help people connect with what else is out there. And obviously it's not all about the big things. That's always the kind of the, the gateway into the understanding is you get these marvellous uh, charismatic species like the basking sharks or the humpback whales that luckily are now also returning in higher numbers to, to Irish shores and are actually spreading up the west coast now which were typically more around the, the south coast around Cork and Kerry but have really started to spread up the west coast and are being sighted more often there now which is fantastic but it's just it's great to see that protection because it also gives an indication of maybe the ambition of government to really do more to protect what we have out there and as well it's wonderful because the basking shark is a fish it's the first fish protected under the Irish Wildlife Act, which is incredible. So maybe it paves the way for, for the possibility to protect other fish species, including things that make up the bottom of the food chain, like smaller, incredibly important fish, like sprat, for example, or sand eels, those kinds of things that feed nearly everything else. You know, seabirds, cetaceans, other fish. They're so uh, such a keystone of the ecosystem. And to think that there could be now a legal pathway to incorporate them is just wonderful mm. well it's lovely to hear you talking so passionately because it makes people understand you know and and if they know more about these other species they will connect to them but just uh, the knowledge isn't out there um, we were in Cornwall years ago when my kids were small and there was a notice saying don't swim in this bay there's basking sharks so we're like okay we're going to go to the next bay so anyway, we went to the next bay swimming along and of course the basking sharks were in the next bay and they were so close and they you didn't feel at all threatened they were literally hanging there like submarines you know quite close to the shore and we were swimming around um there they are there are the basking sharks you yeah, know they yeah. were absolutely beautiful and that's the best thing about basking shark protection now because they are often people's maybe first encounter i would say basking sharks and maybe humpback whales if you're lucky enough and have the privilege to go whale watching in the summertime mm. that is another species that people might come across you know a large charismatic species but again basking sharks are, are fantastic mm. and the other great thing about the protection is is that it, it um allows for the creation of a code of conduct because obviously basking sharks are incredible but we have to be mindful that these are wild animals and they are here to feed so they're here to perform a you know key biological function of theirs and that if we disturb them too much we'll disturb the behavior and can affect the health of the creatures overall mm. so it's great to see that you know the protection will allow for um the lack of disturbance to say breeding grounds and habitat but also to ensure that we can be mindful and respectful of these amazing animals in our waters mm. i went whale watching in cork um last year and it's a protected area there and the amount of dolphins just for a start was um, incredible and we saw minke whales in the distance but the boat wouldn't go anywhere near them you know they they were very good so were just like you know get the binoculars and look over there and, and there she is but um, even to see that whale in the distance I recommend it to everybody it was just fabulous have you got a favorite species that you'd like to talk about plant or animal um favorite species um that is an incredibly it's tricky one personally one. i have one okay i have two uh, well, something two. you're interested yeah. in at the moment yeah. um one that i'm really interested in is well there's a few so okay let me can i pick three? Oh, please do can i pick say i'll pick three that kind of range across different things so um one of them would be cat sharks so the lesser spotted cat shark um is a very small coastal shark that you see in shallow waters very easily and I, I totally fell in love with this species because I'm from West Cork myself. And there's a very, very small bay um, outside Timaleague in, in, in West Cork, not far from Clannacilty. 
and uh, it's a tiny bake and I, I go swimming there a lot and you can swim out of the little cove and you're out onto quite a large sandbank and every time I go there I'm swimming and I'm looking down and there's just these cat sharks sitting on the bottom and they're beautiful kind of a kind of a beige with all these leopard prints all over their bodies you know, they're quite long and slender and they just sit there you know and, and you can swim along and I often go out and I count how many different ones you'd see in an area you know and they'd sit there and sometimes you know if you're there you dive down a little bit and they'll just sit there looking at you you know and they're these incredible to think a shark you're such a beautiful creature and it just they're just living out there and they're so easy to see you know it's same as um it'd be a similar class people would be more familiar with the word dogfish um but the lesser spotted cat shark would be very similar, you know, um, type of type fish, of, yeah. type of fish, and it's just wonderful to see them so close and they're so easy to see. Such a again kind of charismatic species, I suppose. Um, and then uh, the other two species, I guess I'd love to mention are kelp is one of them, obviously kelp being an algae, you know, um, Laminaria digitata being one of the most, you know, large species that. These form huge underwater forests uh, across our shores. And like, I'm a biologist myself, but until I was like 16, I'd say, I was terrified of seaweed. You know, if I touched it when I was swimming, I was like freaked out. It was dark down there. I didn't want to know, you know, it was just, it, it was totally freaky. You never know what's going to come out of it. But until, you know, you understand, like until you know what it is and what it can support and what's in there, then all of a sudden the fear disappears and you're just absolutely amazed. So when I, I scuba dive myself, one of my favorite things to do is just go along the edges of a kelp forest, stick your head in between the, the, the fronds or in between the stipe, you know, which is like the, say, the trunk. Say if you have a tree, you have the, the trunk and you have the branches and the kelp, you have what's uh, called a stipe, which is the long part that, that grows up. And then out of that, the fronds, which are like the leaves, the fingers kind of that grow out of it. And they just support an amazing, amazing array of diversity. You know, you'll go in there and you'll see shark eggs that have been attached to it or skate or ray eggs that have been attached to it. You'll see um, sponges and other kind of algae maybe even growing up the sides. And then inside among the fronds, you know, in the real forest, in the dense part, you'll see a lot of juvenile fish from species ranging from cod to, to all sorts of things like gobies and blennies and all these amazing creatures that live there. But, you know, they're important for, for sequestering carbon because they're so um, fast growing and they can store carbon. But they're so important as well just for, for creating that habitat for nurseries. For, for a cover for these young animals. Exactly, yeah. exactly, you know. Um, which is just, it's just, they're truly phenomenal. And I guess, I guess the other species I'd love to mention is Merrill. So Merrill is a species of um, uh, calcareous algae. So this is an algae that forms a, forms a hard calcium skeleton. And it's a species that is very, it wouldn't be in, in the popular realm of, of, of things, but if you go to Tra Ondolin in Ongararua in, in, in Connemara, which is uh, Coral Strand, you can find it on Google Maps, um, up in, in, in Carraro in County Galway, this is a beach where there are live meryl beds out in the water, but then obviously as the meryl grows and it dies, the meryl gets washed up and you walk in, this just looks like a regular beach. You know, it's a small little cove with boulders and different stuff and rocks sticking out and you can see the sand from the car park until you walk down onto the beach and you realize there's not a grain of sand on the beach. The entire beach is meryl. So it's these little, looks like coral from a coral reef. You know, it looks like these kind of knobbly structures uh, tiny 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 small like you're talking one or two centimeters tall you know because of all broken up and among that then just full of shells but it also means that the water in Trondolin there is unbelievably clear like it's crystal clear I was first place I ever scuba dived when I was in university I joined the local club in um, NUIG and uh, I remember going out there on the 22nd of December and it was freezing cold in a wetsuit that didn't fit but diving out of water and just being blown away by, by how clear it is so yeah. that's another one and Merrill would be a, a um a species that would be very highly considered in the seabed features in our in our report because it's so um delicate it's such a fragile ecosystem but again it forms these these 
uh, kind of a biogenic habitat where it's growing but between it other things are, are living out their lives and creating their lives in there as well yeah it's so important isn't it like um the wilderness area on our farm is just a cover for so many species and i will put up the picture of the protected areas um that fair seas are trying to work on on our instagram um you're so passionate um, Jack about the sea and conservation so just before we end can you tell us where this ig- ignited from in your life um yeah I, I guess it's hard to say I mean I, I'm very lucky that I, I grew up in West Cork you know um and we grew up surfing and swimming and you know I was born on the 7th of January so the middle of winter but every year when I was a child I had my birthday on the beach Oh. Yeah, <laughs> and we used to go down with raincoats and a barbecue, oh, and there'd be games of soccer, football, and 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 there'd be barbecue and cake on the beach, and the rain and the wind. You know, often okay, you'd have to resort back to going home eventually. You know, when it got too bad. But I know I've just been obsessed with the beach and the sea for a long time. But again, you know, people always think that, um, especially people who are aspiring to move into something, think you have to be extremely passionate about something. That's not the case. Like I went to university in in NUIG in Galway. And when I got there, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So even up until third year, I was still studying um, pharmacology, toxicology, like things that are a completely different realm, but realm from what I'm doing now. But I ended up specializing then in, in marine botany and in zoology. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess once I got into that and I was very lucky that when I was in college, I get, during college, kind of worked all throughout the year to the detriment maybe of some of my grades, but managed to save up a bit of money that over the summer I could go away and I volunteered in Greece on a sea turtle research project. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Which is brilliant. And it's mm. great, especially for students. It's called Archelon and it's extremely accessible. Like there's a lot of these um, volunteer conservation groups now that are really just charging people money. You know, they're, they're really ripping people off. But Archelon is a the kind of, I suppose, official um, Greek sea turtle research um institute i suppose you say and it's really accessible it's really cheap it hardly costs you any money to go out there and you you sleep in a tent you know on the beach and you spend your days researching and protecting sea turtle nests and so that really was a time to be in nature like on your your, your you know your 10 hours a day on these beaches surveying and telling people about it and then um when i finished university i got um a, a position as a research assistant with a group called they're now called i think the pacific whale foundation is that what they're called uh place called whale point anyway in british columbia and i got to spend a couple of months out there on an uninhabited island researching humpback whales oh, and killer whales sounds very exotic yeah it yeah. was absolutely incredible um and like that you know just spent i suppose when i should have been studying spent more time working in pubs and trying to save up the money because i knew this was something that might ha- was going to happen afterwards but luckily look the grades were fine in the end and managed to get out there and spent that time and just to be in a place, it was the first time in the world where I was in a place where humans had no claim. Like you'd go for a walk in the forest and there'd be paths through the forest, but they're not human paths. Like, you know, you walk in the woods here and there's all the, the worn trails, all the places you walk. And I remember realizing this almost coming face to face with a black bear one time where I was walking and I thought I was, I was kind of lost and we were with the group and we got lost and we thought we were following the trail that the group had made until all of a sudden we come like nearly face to face with this black bear and really? realize this is the black bear's trail and this is the wolf's trail because there's no people here you know the only people and did you see him straight on or was he, was, he, he was just the far side of a bush like <laughs> we came and we were we were walking we, we split up from the group we lost them and then we were calling we said hey oh we're here we're here we're here we ran up to this bush and we just got to the other side of a, of a kind of like you know like a big uh, gorse bush with a b- bit of bramble or something like that and we just got up to the other side we're like hey hey because hey, we heard them walking and all we heard was and oh and you know like you know you're warned about the bears and you have bear spray and all this 
We lost a little bit of audio there, but just to fill you in, Jack made a lot of noise, clapped his hands and jumped around and the black bear ran away. Um, have you any book that you'd like to recommend to the listeners? Um, so let's see. I actually recently only started listening to audiobooks because I'm a terrible reader. You know, it, I, I think maybe I don't have the patience or I just for sitting still for that long, you know, I've never been good at it. Um, but one book that I think actually is really important, especially for Irish people, you know, and people living in Ireland would be um, the book called 32 Words for Field by Moncom again. Um, and important, not in the context of, you know, if you know nothing about the Irish language or Irish or have any interest in it, it doesn't really matter, but more so to show that we had, we had, and hopefully we'll have again, you know, and, and still have in some parts, such a connection to the land and the landscape. And I know Moncon has a new book out actually called, uh, what, what's it called now? He has some new book out now anyway, it's something like Speak for the, I don't know, I, listen to the, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, he, yeah, I know. I a new book. Of, yeah. And, and the book basically. I'll get the name, I'll put, it, I'll put them in the show notes. Oh, great, yeah. yeah. And I haven't read the new one yet now, but the, it talks about the fact that, you know, language the irish language was used really so much more intimately maybe to help us describe and um tell stories of our landscape you know and the fact that 32 words for field it means that fields are not just a field the word you don't just have a word for field you have i mean you do in modern irish now you know people do different words but the, the word would be far more descriptive and it would d depict the exact purpose of of the the um the field and actually if I'm going to be 100% honest, my favourite book I've ever read was a book that a neighbour of mine in West Cork wrote. It's like the memoir of one of these old boys who lived on the road. His name was Dan Crowley. And he wrote a book called um, uh, My Time in My Place. And he lived his whole life on this one road. He saw the road turn from a dirt track to a tarmac road. He saw the introduction of electricity to the area, the uh, introduction of the electric fence to the area. Like he saw, you know, Dan probably died 10 or 15 years ago now when he was 80 something when he died. So... You know, he'd seen a lot of changes in his time, but the interesting thing is, like, between, say, where our house was, our family home, and Dan's farm, there was two big fields. But when I read his book, there was 40 fields between those two houses, you know, when, when, when he was first on the farm. And he said, and he named them, and he said each of the fields had its own name, and they were because this something grew particular in that field and you'd always cut something different from that field in this field or that's where the calves were put early in the year you know in, in this particular one and that was just one big field you know, the it's, walls away or the hedges exactly there's no yeah. hedges or no ditches there you know luckily they did keep a couple of lovely big um trees that are that, that are in the field but maybe three trees out of you know hectares of, of land um and you know again look that's no detriment to the farmers and even dan who would have known a lot about it the reason they started bulldozing ditches was because in the 50s the government brought in schemes for people for agricultural improvement as they called mm. it schemes and those you would get grants to clear your ditches yeah. and to drain the bogs and in in the area where i live like you know there's no bog whatsoever anywhere but in his book he talked about how all the low part that borders the river he said that was all bog and they drained it all and they seeded it for grass and stuff like that you know it's been like that now for 70 years or something but so yeah i think moncom began's books are great just mm. to give us that connection to how deeply you know intertwined our lives and to even our language was with the, the world around us is a great kickstarter into opening our eyes more so to the world around us yeah and i think irish people have that in them still but they don't quite understand it because they have been separated slightly from the land but there is a kind of a, a longing to get that connection back so thank you so much jack it was a really really inspiring interview um, thank you so much for coming. Great, thanks so much for having me. And like I say, um, if anyone wants to find any more information, everything's on fairseas.ie. 
um, and if you have any questions just please follow us on social media or sign up to our monthly newsletter that's the best way to get involved at the moment and any of the key kind of campaign asks and objectives will be shared through that portal first oh that's wonderful and i'll put all that information in the show notes thanks a million News from Bar Nature Sanctuary. This week's episode is one week late in respect of Eilish Birmingham, Roy's mother, whose funeral was last Sunday.